Well, last week we went way off script. I mean, in a big way. We did something we've never done before, which is we took an opportunity to engage in a dialogue during church. And you guys texted in uh, over 300 questions. I got to about 8% of your questions, uh, which is a very, very difficult thing. And, and, and we had an opportunity live and in real time to kind of fly without a net and just say, what, what would God do if we kind of gave him permission to, 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 to take over the service, take over the questions, and take over the content? And I really appreciated the way that we got an opportunity to do that, kind of the overwhelming feedback was, that was really cool. We should do that again. And like, that's easy for you to say. Um, I'll put you up here with a microphone and pepper you with Bible questions. We'll see how that goes. Um, but we did get very positive feedback. And so we will do that again at another point somewhere down the road as we continue to seek to be a dialoguing church that's in a conversation together with everybody. And last week you asked questions and we all know this, right? Life is full of questions. There are easy questions to answer. Like, Grant, where do you get your shoes? I'm like, Macy's, Black Friday sale, 24 bucks. It was a good deal. Um, and you can answer them very, very easily. There are curious questions. Like, why is there an expiration date on a sour cream container? Think about it. Come on, 1115, work with me just a little bit, all right? Why, why do you call it a building if it's already built? If there's a sign on the front of your car that says Dodge, do you really need a horn? Um, What do sheep count when they can't get to sleep? When you choke a Smurf, what color does it turn? I'm going to get in trouble for that. Um, what was the best thing before sliced bread? It's those kinds of questions, right? And there are, there are those questions. There are serious questions. Is this person that I'm dating, are they the one? Should I move and change careers because I've been here in this place and God may want me to do this? What is my purpose? What's my, what's my passion? Those are difficult, serious questions. There's difficult life questions. You, you sent them to me last week. Why didn't God answer my prayer when they answered that person's prayer? Is God real? Why is my faith so difficult? Is the Bible true? How can I know for sure? Those are serious, difficult life questions. And all the questions are valid. And they need to be asked and they need to be answered. I went back through the questions that came in last weekend, 300 plus. That's a lot of questions. And as I walked through them, seeking to understand your heart, I found, I found themes. The theme of pain was there. The theme of suffering was there. There were a lot of questions. It was just like, just tell me what to do. What should I do? Questions about God, why he is the way that he is. There was a prevailing question that came up. Well, why did that happen to me and where was God in the middle of it? I want to thank you as a church for being courageous. Thank you for asking the difficult, difficult questions and not backing off. And I would also say this, um, hopefully as your pastor and your friend, I heard your pain. Everybody in this room has that in common, which means you're in really, really safe place if you're dealing with hard stuff. And I wish, I wish I could hug every single one of you and tell you it's going to be okay can't. I'd like to, but I can't. I'm going to try and do something better. I would love to walk us all with all of our questions to the only authority that I know of that can actually give us an answer that's worth listening to. So we're going to open our scriptures today because time is limited. And I'm going to try and attack three major themes that showed up last week. 
Whenever I try to walk people in difficult directions, one of the questions I often ask is, what's the question beneath the question? So what was actually the story underneath of why you asked what you did? And as I began to ask the questions from last week, I found a deeper undergirding question that was basically this. Grant, how do I reconcile blank, whatever it happens to be with blank? So how do I reconcile my sexuality with God's standard? How do I reconcile my need for an answer with God's silence? How do I reconcile faith and science? How do I get those two to have an intelligent conversation? How do I reconcile God's authority with my own need for authority? How do I reconcile an ancient book with modern culture? How do I put that together? And here's what you need to know. I've asked all of those questions myself. At some point, all of those questions have permeated my mind. And so I'm going to call this section my questions for myself because I've actually had to wade through them. Nobody in the room is immune from asking those kinds of questions. We've all got to wrestle with God with these difficult life questions. We had a whole stack of inquiries that basically could be summed up with this question. How do I reconcile my disappointment in people? with God's mandate to love them. How do I put those two pieces together? So if you've hung around before, you know the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. Let's unpack that and go a little deeper. So how do I relate to a parent that's disappointed me? How do I relate to a person who willfully hurt me? What do I do with a person who used their position in my life to actually take advantage and abuse me? What do I do with a coworker who despises me? How do I relate to somebody who believes the exact opposite of what I do? How do I relate to a person who demeans me or discriminates against me? What do I do when I just plain don't like somebody? Those are good questions. And in every one of the cases that I just laid out, God has empowered us with choices, and he's also given us a model to follow. I can't tell you your story, but I can tell you my story. There was a section in my life when I was dead in my trespasses, in my sins, and this is what I did. I dishonored God, I vilified God, I abused his mercy, I despised his guidance, I willfully hurt him by continuing on a path of destruction and bad choices, I demeaned God and his love, and if I was to be super honest with you, I would say every time he extended his grace to me, I spit on it. And in spite of all of that, in spite of giving him every reason to wash his hands of me, this is his response. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrong. We say that again. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. That is the way God dealt with a human being who spit on his grace. And God says, that's how I want you to treat everyone. Even the people who've hurt you and disappointed you. He's called us to do the same. As a follower of Jesus, I am filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And being filled with that Spirit has a natural outflow, according to Scripture. They're called the fruit of the Spirit. The Bible calls them the fruit because every relationship I have, 
either brings with it an opportunity to put that fruit on display as a beautiful thing or to, to show people what it looks like when it's completely gone and absent. Before I go into this list, I want you to hear me again. I'm not saying you need to be friends with an abuser. I'm not saying you have to condone what they did. I'm not saying that you have to even like a person who discriminates against you. But I am saying, in light of how God relates to you, this is what must be evident in every relationship you have. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing, there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. You need to know something about my wicked heart. Left to myself, I've got a passion to make people pay if they've hurt me. There's something inside of me that wants the satisfaction of them hurting just as much as they've hurt me. And here's what drives me crazy as a pastor. I get to prepare this kind of stuff, but before I ever get to say it, God begins to work in my heart about exactly this topic. So I'm in a coffee shop this past week working on this section. And I go up to buy my caffeine fix with my ethical addiction. And I'm standing in line behind a guy who's wearing a hat and glasses. And I did, not reckon, I did not recognize him at first. But when he turned side profile, I knew who he was. And I took a step back. He's my personal troll on social media. And he has said horrible things about me in public circles even though we've never officially met. And as he's standing in line ordering, I overhear the barista say these words, Sir, I'm sorry, but you're $2 short. And in my flesh, <laughs> in my natural state, I'm thinking, good. No coffee for you! Out the door. <laughs> and in the quietness of my soul, I hear the Spirit of God in such an annoying way say to me, <laughs> love keeps no record of wrongs. Love is not easily angered. Love is kind, and I want you to treat him the same way that I treat you. So I handed my card, and she slid it through the machine, and he turned to say thanks until he saw who it was. And then he sneered at me and walked out the door. But I had peace. Way down here in the bottom of my soul, I got a chance. 
for just an instant to be like Jesus. I'm not telling you that to set myself as some glorious example. If you could have known what was really running through my head in that moment, you would be embarrassed for me. But how beautiful is it that no matter what's been done to us, we have an opportunity to act like Jesus. Here's the second major theme of the questions. How do I reconcile the tension between God's authority and my authority? It showed up over and over and over and over again. We had a whole realm of questions that dealt with sexuality. The question under the question was evident. God has this standard for me sexually. What if I don't want to do it? What if I want to do my own thing? You've heard me say this before without apology. God said in his word, the only appropriate place for sexual expression is in a committed marriage relationship between a man and a woman. That's what the Bible says. But there's something inside of us that goes, but what if I want to do what I want to do with who I want to do it when I want to do it? My English teacher just died. That was a horrible sentence, okay? (laughs) But you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, what do you do when God's standard seems unreachable or it seems unreasonable? It's a good question, right? Can we all admit at some level that we have authority issues? There's just something inside of us. By the way, if you said no, this is great class in denial that you should come and check out. <laughs> I'll go with you, okay? So, um, but there's something inside of us that never, ever grows up. And when God says, this is the way I actually want it to be in your life for your good, if we don't like it, there's something inside of us like, you are not the boss of me. You are not the boss of me. But here's the issue. When a person comes to Jesus, a part of that relationship is acknowledging, Jesus, you are the boss of me. And the way I live that out, the way I live out lordship, is I actually obey you. Here's what following Jesus means. It means we find our personal authority, not in ourselves, but in the word of God and the spirit of God. Okay, where does that come from? The Bible says this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Can we have an honest moment? I love it when the Bible teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains somebody else. I don't like it when it pushes up against me. Why is scripture so important? Verse 17, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible also says this in John chapter 16, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you all into, or he'll guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. So as followers of Christ, here's what we do. When we need authority questions answered, we go to the Bible under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and then we've got to struggle with how the Bible insists on being my authority. And it is a struggle because the Bible never makes it easy. The Bible doesn't just say, thou shalt not commit adultery. It also says to every guy in the room, if you even look lustfully at a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It gets harder It presses up against me. I mean, here's what you need to know about the Bible. The Bible will press up against your issues and your perspectives and your selfishness and your culture and your comfort. It will make you squirm, just like I was squirming last week. It's a part of the journey. Now, I'm going to say this. I love my Bible. 
I love the easy parts. I love the difficult parts. I love the whole counsel of God and the nuance of God. And I want to make sure that we have an opportunity to kind of touch on something that's known as hermeneutic today because we had so many questions that basically said, how do I interpret the scripture with regard to this issue? So for an example, we had a boatload of questions about tattoos. That may surprise some of you. 11.15 doesn't shock you at all, right? Okay. (laughs) Bunch of questions about tattoos. Leviticus chapter 19. Do not cut your body for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Oh. It's like, okay, can't do it. Why? Why did God in the Old Testament say that? It was simple. It's because pagan nations marked themselves and marked their bodies as a sign of allegiance to a God that was not the God of Israel. So God's saying to his people, I don't want you to look like everybody else. I want you to be marked as my people. Okay, so you go, okay, well, that's clear. So you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's written to a believer who's no longer under the Old Testament law, but it's under grace. And your Bible says this, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. So suddenly, I read the entire context of Scripture, and I realize there are matters of conscience and matters of discretion where God says, I've got to use my wisdom, and I get to choose. So biblically, I'll answer the question. Is it okay for me to get a tattoo? It's up to you. Is it permissible? Yes. The question becomes, is it wise? And I would encourage you to be wise, considering placement, considering content, and considering gravity. (laughs) Just saying, (laughs) all right? (laughs) You need to pray and ask God, God, do you want me to do this? And if God doesn't give you peace, the answer is no. We have to be careful and realize original audience, context, culture, truth, authorship, all work together to discern what God's really saying, and then we've got to choose. Am I going to obey God's authority or live on my own? We got lots of questions about church, which I thought was ironic. People are asking questions about, do I need to go to church? And they're in church asking the question. So... um, (laughs) It's a little confusing to me, but you know, they're quoting verses, right? The Bible says wherever two or three are gathered, that's good enough. That's all I need, a small group, that's good. The Bible also says do not forsake the gathering of yourselves, and it's talking a large context. So the bottom line is Scripture says you need church. We need each other. The whole counsel of God leads you to a fuller understanding so you don't get caught misquoting God's authority. I love the Old Testament story of Job. It's a story of pain. It's a story of hope. It's a story of trust. You know why else I love the story of Job? It's because it describes the fact that the devil's on a leash. And he only gets to go as far as Jesus says he gets to go. I like that. Job is challenged in the face of pain to either hide under God's authority or discard God's authority. And he challenges God's authority. He actually asks for a hearing. He says, I want to talk to God face to face. Quick note, be careful what you ask for. God might just say, okay. Because he does. He goes, you want to talk, Job? Let's talk. He actually says this to him, brace yourself like a man. Because I'm going to ask you a few questions. It's a scary part of the book. 
Job speaks out against God and God answers. And at the end of that little transition, we have this beautiful summary of God, Job's authority about how he views God's authority. The Bible says, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this that obscures my plans without any knowledge? Job says, Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, and therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Job acknowledged something, that God has the right to be God. He acknowledged that God's plan was somehow for Job's greater good, even when he was in the midst of unbelievable pain. He acknowledged his limited understanding of how God's plan actually worked. He acknowledged how he'd heard God and heard of God, but now in the pain of all of it, he'd seen God. I have a difficult question for you. If you knew that the pain you were going through would result in an opportunity to see the face of God, would you look at the pain differently? Bottom line, Job chooses God's authority as the ultimate and the right authority. Christ the King, how about you? How about you? Under whose authority will you live the life that God has given you? One major theme, and then we're going to wrap this up. This question showed up over and over and over again. How do I reconcile pain with the idea of a good God? How do I put those two together? Those are life-altering questions, and they usually only come when you're in the middle of unbelievable, intense pain. Because you ask questions like, did God inflict this on me? Where does personal ownership come in when I, when I bring pain on myself? Because let's face it, most of us experience pain because of our own poor choices. What do I do when the pain comes from the action of another person? What do I do when it hurts so bad I can't even picture what life will look like? I, I don't even know how to go on. So let me give you a quick primer on pain. Okay, I wish I had time to unpack this. Maybe it'll become a series all by itself. But let me give you just some really, really quick stuff on pain because it's so important that we know this. Number one, God's not the source of pain. Sin is. Okay, we need to know that, all right? Adam and Eve are in the garden. Everything is perfect. There is no pain until sin and disobedience enter the world and then pain comes along with it. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So whether it's our sin or the sin of another person's actions that affect us or simply the pain that comes as a result of living in an unbelievably broken world, you need to know this. God is not the source of your pain. Sin is. Secondly, pain can bring about repentance. Here's what happens when we sin. We create a rift between us and God. When we sin, we create a rift between us and other people. That's just the way that it works. And sometimes the pain of that separation can actually bring about a reconciliation, repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it's a beautiful story of reconciliation. Someone has caused pain inside of, this, uh, uh, of an expression of God's family, and now they believe that the pain of separation is so great, they want to make it right, so it drives them back together again. So pain brings about repentance. Thirdly, pain teaches empathy. When you hurt you learn how to comfort other people who are hurting. 
You learn how to do it right, and unfortunately for some of us, you learn how to do it wrong because people don't know how to, how to walk with other people through pain. It's just a difficult thing. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 4. The Bible says, who comforts us in all of our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves received from God. So God comes and comforts us in the middle of our pain, and we get to pay that forward with other people. Number four, pain can actually draw us closer to God. 2 Corinthians 4, all of this, meaning the good stuff and the bad stuff in your life, is for your benefit. So that the grace that's reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. We're all looking for that moment when God takes the pain that we're experiencing and somehow makes himself famous through it. And it's hard to get there. It's difficult, but God says, look, if you will actually look to me and make me your most powerful ally instead of your most convenient enemy. Here's what I promise. When you keep your eyes on Jesus, other people are going to want to look to see where you're looking in the midst of pain too. Let's keep going. Pain builds character. We read this last week as part of one of the answers, Romans chapter 5, verse 3, that we also glory in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And we know how it goes, right? Perseverance produces character. Character ultimately ends in hope. And here's what encourages all of us as followers of Jesus. We actually have the hope that one day pain is going to go away. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Would anybody else like to purchase a front row ticket for the moment when sickness, death, cancer, and pain all go into the pit of hell where they belong? Anybody like to join me with that day? I think that's something we all look forward to. And we have that hope. That's what allows us to walk through this. Let me tell you a story of a good friend of mine. We have known each other for more than 10 years. He's an agnostic. He does not believe what I believe. He thinks I'm nuts. I'm okay with that. We've been friends for a long time. It drives him crazy. And by the way, I'm sharing all of this with his, with his permission. He came last weekend, all three services. Because he's like, you're going to do what? You're going to like take questions? Like, really? And just answer them? No prep? That's awesome. I want to come and watch that. I'm like, thanks, bro. Yeah, thanks. Um, The reality is he has a belief system, just like I do. He's put his belief in unbelief. I put my belief in Jesus. And as we were processing through the questions, he was just so interested to hear, what what do people who come to church, what kind of questions are they going, what kind of questions are in their head? He was so interested. And we ended up back with the old classic. It's where we get hung up every time we have the conversation. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's a tough question. We've talked about that question so many times because that's where he just can't get beyond that idea that there's a good God who lets bad things happen. Our conversation was a little different this week. Because as I've been studying and prepping, my brain started spinning in a bit of a different direction. And while we're sitting there just talking and chatting, being both very respectful of each other's positions, he he actually said those words out loud. I just wish you could answer this, Grant. Why do bad things happen to good people? And I said, can I ask you a question? Where did you get the idea of good from? Where did good come from? He's like, what do you mean? I said, 
So if there's a category called good, I actually believe it must have come from outside of ourselves because it's not consistent with the way the rest of the world works. He's like, what? I don't understand. He says, let me ask you a question. Is rape bad? He goes, absolutely. I I agree with you. It's bad. It's horrible. It's wicked. It's evil. It's wrong. Unless you're a shark. He's like, what? I said, so sharks force copulate all the time. That's how they continue their species. And we wouldn't say that's bad. We would just say that's a shark acting like a shark. But somewhere along the line, as human beings, we gathered our morality together and said, no, as far as it depends on us, it's bad. And we will not stand for it if we can do anything about it. And somewhere along the line, we created this idea that no, what is good is when you have consent and permission and love and commitment. I said, here's the deal, dude. I don't think we came up with that on our own. I think it was a gift from a good God. So I said, as much as you don't like it, I think your category of good actually came from somebody that I love. My buddy gave me permission to tell you what his response was. He said, I hate it when Christians start thinking. (laughs) We went on to, to press into the issue. We kept the conversation going. In fact, I challenged him. I said, you know what? Here's where I get tired of. I said, people think that Christians are the only ones that have to answer those kinds of questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? I said, so you don't believe in God? Same question. What's your answer? Why do bad things happen to good people? And I love my friend's honesty. It's what's kept us in this dialogue for so long. And I I give this with his permission. He said, I try not to think about it because it just leaves me hopeless. My friends, following Jesus may be hard and full of questions. But what I love about following Jesus is it takes me to a place of hope. That God knows something I don't know. And that if I just stay planted firmly on his foundation someday, Someday, it's going to make sense. Let's wrap up with this. I want to say to all of you, especially if you text in a question, your pain is real. In my humble view, God is greater. And God gave you a question for a reason, and just because I couldn't answer it doesn't mean it's not worthy to be asked and answered. I would just encourage you to find a place where you can get an answer. In fact, I think this, what what does God want us to hear from him in all of these things? Well, let me let him speak for himself. Jeremiah 33, verse 3, call to me, I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you don't know. Here's my modern translation. God is saying, you can ask me anything. There's no question you can't ask him. Here's his invitation to all of us. New Testament, 
Matthew chapter 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. I want you to notice something. There is no timeline attached to any of that. It might take a week, it might take a month, it might take a year, it might take a decade, it might take your whole life. But God says, if you ask, if you seek, if you keep pounding on the door, in God's perfect time, you'll get an answer to your question. The reason we are doing... uh, Connect weekend this weekend is because we have more than one place to get a question answered. I would have loved to have been able to answer everybody's questions. We'll do the live thing again sometime. Maybe we'll get to some more of them. But I want you to know everything that's represented out there is an opportunity to get your questions answered. Maybe your group, or maybe you need your question answered in a small group because you need some friends to walk, with it, to walk through it with you. Maybe it's a men's group, maybe it's a women's group, maybe it's a high school group, maybe it's a college group. I don't know, maybe it's a recovery group. Maybe you're a guy who's struggling with with, with addiction type stuff or you're a woman who's struggling with addiction. We have opportunities for so many people that can just go through and here's what I can tell you. Nobody's afraid of your question. So find a place where you can ask it. My hope and prayer is that Christ the King will always be a safe place where we can ask hard questions. And continue to allow the Bible and God's Holy Spirit to be our authority while we struggle. Would you pray with me this morning as we close? God, thank you for an opportunity to be here. And God, I pray for anyone in the room who in this moment is saying in their heart of hearts, I want to be under God's authority. I've lived under my own authority long enough, God. And I pray right now that they will humble their heart confess their sin, receive God's forgiveness, and experience the fact that love keeps no record of wrongs. So God, would you bless all of us as we continue to place ourselves under your authority when it's easy and when it's hard. God, may the word continue to press us forward and prompt good questions, and we pray these things. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.